Hello and welcome to the podcast for the February 2011 issue of The Lancet Oncology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm joined once again by Rob Briley from TLO to run through some of the issue highlights. Rob, welcome. Let's start with um, a research article and this concerns the treatment of head and neck cancer. Before we go into details of that, how common is head and neck cancer? Globally, head and neck cancer is amongst the top 10 most common forms of cancer and is also in the top 10 in terms of cancer-related mortality. Of note, the number of patients presenting with HPV-related head and neck cancers, predominantly of the oropharynx, appears to be rising. What were the aims of this randomised trial? The main non-surgical treatment for head and neck cancer is radiotherapy, which can result in high rates of tumour control and five-year survival of 60 to 80%, depending on stage. However, one of the most common radiation-related late side effects in this setting is xerostomia, or dry mouth, which is associated with effects on speech, dental health, swallowing, taste, and general quality of life. This trial aimed to compare the effects of conventional radiotherapy with that of parotid-sparing intensity-modulated radiotherapy, or IMRT, on xerostomia. And the results, Rob, they seem quite clear-cut. That's right, Richard. At both 12 and 24 months, significantly fewer patients who had received IMRT had grade 2 or worse xerostomia than did those who received conventional radiotherapy. There was also evidence of a greater recovery of saliva secretion in patients treated with IMRT, and there were clinically significant improvements in quality of life scores. The authors thus conclude that these data strongly support a role for IMRT in treating patients with head and neck cancer. Great, thanks Rob. And let's move on now to the editorial this month. This concerns some new guidelines coming out of the US Food and Drug Administration. What's all uh, all this about? In December, the FDA released draft guidance on the co-development of novel and unmarketed drugs, which will hopefully serve as a catalyst to guide future drug development, with an emphasis on combining treatments to speed development, reduce costs, and give patients quicker access to new treatments. And why is this relevant uh, in oncology? A recent report from the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America suggests that more than 800 cancer drugs are currently in development. However, more often than not, many of these will end up failing in clinical trials, often because they lack sufficient activity as monotherapy to warrant further research. The FDA's guidance encourages industry to work together more closely to co-develop drugs for which there is a robust biological rationale for a combination, for instance, where there is evidence of a synergistic effect or the possibility of preventing the development of resistance. So what will this mean for drug trials in oncology, Rob, and ultimately, of course, for clinical practice? Ultimately, these guidelines could result in less waste and in quicker development of effective drugs. However, there is still scope to do better. Were the FDA to throw its weight behind head-to-head comparative effectiveness studies of drugs that were already on the market, for instance, patients and clinicians could be assured that they were making decisions on treatment options on the best available evidence base. Next, Rob, an interesting-looking research article, and this concerns quantifying the prevalence of depression in the cancer setting. Why is this issue important uh, for oncologists in terms of detecting depression and related mood disorders? Depression is one of the most common mental health problems worldwide and is a major complication for patients with cancer. There's evidence to suggest that depression in patients with cancer results in serious suffering and distress and can reduce participation with medical care. Although the prevalence of depression is known to be higher in patients with cancer than it is in the general population, no firm estimate of its prevalence based on robustly defined diagnostic criteria currently exists, and it is often overlooked by cancer professionals. Rob, just run through the methods here, including the way that depression is actually measured. This study is a meta-analysis, drawing on data from almost 100 studies in which patients in oncological, haematological and palliative care settings underwent psychiatric interview with the main outcomes of interest defined using standard diagnostic criteria, 
based on the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And the results, Rob, rather interesting, are they not? Depression and anxiety were actually less common than previously thought. About a sixth of patients had depression alone, with 30-40% to of patients affected by some sort of mood disorder. Further, there appeared to be no difference in prevalence between patients in palliative and those in non-palliative settings. So what's the take-home message for oncologists concerning depression and mood disorders in their patients? Well, although less common than anticipated, mood disorders still represent a substantial burden that uh, that is often overlooked. A more systematic approach in clinical assessment and follow-up is warranted, and clinicians not specifically trained to recognise psychiatric conditions should be urged to become more vigilant when dealing with their patients. Finally, just walk through any other highlights in the February issue. There's a genetic expression model for molecular nodal staging of bladder cancer, a randomised trial looking at the use of interferon for adjuvant therapy of melanoma, the long-term follow-up of the TAX324 study, which is uh, looking at induction chemotherapy for head and neck cancer, and we have an interesting review on new driver mutations in non-small cell lung cancer, another on radionuclide and and hybrid imaging of recurrent prostate cancer, and a paper looking at fertility-sparing surgery in patients with cervical cancer. Excellent, great. Well, many thanks indeed, Rob. Those are some of the highlights from the February issue of The Lancet Oncology. We'll see you next month.